Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Claire Ainsley. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Claire Ainsley blev temmelig nedslået efter Brexit-afstemningen i 2016. Hun blev ikke som så mange andre, der havde stemt ja, og efterfølgende måtte leve med et nej, nedslået over resultatet af afstemningen. Det, der frustrerede hende, det var, at afstemningen havde afsløret en afgrund mellem den politiske klasse, de veluddannede i storebyerne, den økonomiske overklasse og så resten af landet. Det var selve den alliance mellem den politiske klasse og arbejderklassen, som burde være fundamentet for en demokratisk regering i Storbritannien, var blevet smadret. Claire Ainsley er selv vokset op i et arbejderklasse hjem. Hun var som ung stærkt engageret i venstre intellektuelle idéer. Lidt senere i sit liv var hun ansat i en meget stor britisk fagforening. Så arbejdede hun i en tænketank med forskellige sociale projekter. Og på det tidspunkt i 2017-18, der var hun stadigvæk ansat i en tænketank, hvor man arbejdede med at løse sociale problemer og, og fattigdomsproblemer. Og så tænkte hun, vi må simpelthen finde ud af, hvem arbejderklassen er. Vi må finde ud af, hvad der er deres synspunkter og hvad der er deres holdninger. Og vi må forstå, at arbejderklassen i dag er ikke kun industriarbejderen som står ved samlebåndet, eller den, der arbejder på fabrikken, eller den, der arbejder ved, i, by, i byggeriet. Arbejderklassen i dag er også alle de unge, som kører rundt og laver budservice inde i storebyerne. Det er dem, der arbejder i handel, det er dem, der arbejder i service, det er dem, der sidder på hotellerne. Arbejderklassen er ikke bare i nogle bestemte arbejderbyer. Arbejderklassen er overalt omkring os. Den arbejderklasse bliver man nødt til at forstå. Så derfor lavede hun et stort projekt, som handlede om at gennemgå alle de undersøgelser, der var af den britiske arbejderklasses holdninger og synspunkter. Hun lavede dertil sine egne analyser, og dem samlede hun i bogen The New Working Class – How to Win Hearts, Minds and Votes, der kom i 2018. Jeg stiftede bekendtskab med den bog, da vores kollega Mathias Sindberg var i Storbritannien over julen for at lave reportager fra et land i krisen og henviste til Claire Ainslis bog. Og jeg tænkte, da jeg læste om hende, at hende måtte vi bestemt have i langsomme samtaler. Siden gik det op for mig, at Claire Ainslie fra 2020 til efteråret 2022 havde været chef for politikudvikling under Kier Starmer. Det vil sige, at hendes analyser af arbejderklassen også var helt tæt på magten i Labour-partiet. Hun har været helt tæt på den mand, Kier Starmer, der ifølge alle meningsmålinger i Storbritannien står til at blive premierminister i landet, hvis der skulle være valg i dag. Så hun har både en stor idéudvikling bag sig, stor pragmatisk erfaring, og så har hun en indsigt i, hvad det egentlig er, Kier Starmer, som vi ikke ved særlig meget om, vil magten, hvis han skulle vinde et valg i morgen. Hun er frygteligt frustreret over krisen i Storbritannien, som er så grotesk og omfattende, at udsigterne for Storbritanniens økonomi i 2023 er værre end for Ruslands, der vil at mærke er ramt af det hårdeste system af sanktioner i verdenshistorien. Her følger min samtale med Claire Ainsley. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking your time. You know, we are like, we feel like we've been writing about the working class, and I, I must say in hindsight, fantasizing about the working class for the last 25 years and all theories about what they should do and how they should lead class warfare and remobilize and everything. So your book was really a sobering, but also an inspiring read to us. Well, thank you. That's very kind. 
And but when I read the book, I also had the I also got the sensation that that you'd been working with the thoughts about the working class for for, for many years. That you you I had the feeling that you came from the left like we do. That that I felt that you were in dialogue with a lot of the the ideas of how the left should renew itself. So I'm just curious, what was your way into politics originally? Uh, so. I three through my family background. Um, so my family were very political in the sense that uh, they were identified as working class. And um, my my grandfather on my maternal side was a minor. So for the British working class, that's the kind of archetypal working class job. Um, but I also became interested in politics as a teenager. So I don't really remember a time when I haven't been interested in current affairs and politics. And uh, after I graduated from university, I um, I went to uh, work at a trade union, the Transport and General Workers Union for, for about six years. And so that was a real test bed, if you like, of the theories that you learn and they meet the reality of trade unionism, which is actually a very pragmatic form of politics. So my politics has been formed very much by family background around trade unionism, but also a really kind of pragmatic, practical type of politics. And I've enjoyed both the theory, but also some of the doing. And then more recently, I worked at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which um, is, a, is a foundation that was set up by a Victorian philanthropist. So a different kind of political tradition, if you like, more liberal rather than uh, socialist. Uh, and through that work, worked with people who were often out of work and in poverty. And uh, for me, much of what motivates me is wanting to see a different type of economy that delivers for people but um knowing that you have to take people with you to do that and uh perhaps the radicalism that's sometimes projected by parts of the hard left is not perhaps in tune with uh where many people want want themselves to go so yeah very personal background but also um that's been lived through some of the choices of um work that i've, I've chosen to do you know looking at the uk from denmark and from a leftist position in denmark I often wondered, on the one hand, there's a very strong class consciousness in British culture, and you have class uh, working class writers and you have film directors like Mike Lee, and there's a, a consciousness about what it means to be working class and a certain pride and very, very sharp distinctions in 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 your society and 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 among workers and and on the left. And on the other hand, looking at the UK for the last 30 or 40 years, it's hard for me to find a country where the left has been weaker. And, and many here say, oh, we should have a stronger working class consciousness. We should have what, what they have in the UK. Uh, do you see this dilemma and how do you explain it? Uh, I do see that dilemma. And I think our society is very uh, class ridden and it becomes popular from time to time to say class is dead as a concept. Now age or education or some other characteristics has replaced it. And it just, it, it never goes away. For me, it is the, nothing beats class as a framework through which to analyze both sociologically and economically. And um, of course there are other ways of understanding the world, but I, but I certainly think in terms of British society, class plays its part, but we've often been living with quite outdated uh, ideas of what those class structures mean. To your question about how was that, high level of class consciousness 
not translated into a more radical form of leftism throughout throughout you know British uh, politics since um, you know since uh, the sort of start of the twentieth century. I personally think it's a success of uh, political labour. So it's, for me, I think it's a success of British trade unions and the UK Parliamentary Labour Party at being able to pragmatically find their way through uh, conflictual and adversarial type class politics and actually be able to even take through some of the major economic and social reforms that we had in the 20th century, the welfare state, the National Health Service, have all been instigated by radical reforming Labour governments. And I also think the British, the nature of British class politics is that it has its adversarial moments, but there's much more a sense of uh, culturally wanting to achieve uh, pragmatic solutions. There isn't a lot of space for uh, revolutionary rather than evolutionary uh, politics um, we haven't found yet. So when you, when you wrote this book, the, the, the New Working Class, that came out four or five years ago, what was your reason for writing it? So I wrote it in, most of the writing was 2017. Um, so at the end of 2016, I did not feel very optimistic politically. So um, we had the, the, obviously the election of Donald Trump in the US And in Britain, we'd had the vote to leave the European Union. And I, I voted Remain, but I, I didn't, I wasn't someone who thought we should kind of undo that vote. I thought you had to sort of accept that vote. But it did really change politically um, in so many ways what's happened here. And I was thinking about, well, what, what can I contribute to? How do you try and take us forward out of where we are now? And I really just thought that, listening to the views and experiences and, and wants of working class people was was absolutely imperative and, and and redefining what it meant to be working class to your point about how people perceive themselves rather than people wanting to be people are aspirational people want to do well in life in in this country and I'm sure in yours too but people are more likely to identify as working class than middle class even though they've been fed this kind of political diet if you like of of you know the middle class is where we need to be pitching to so I, I thought actually if we updated our definition of what it meant to be working class and we just listened and tuned into what people wanted and didn't stereotype people just as being part of traditional working class but actually listened to their thoughts and preferences it might reveal and highlight and enlighten something that could take us forward so it was born out of a, of a want to try and move us out of where we were and help find the new And and what surprised you the most? Because your your book is very much studying the actual views of working class. There are no theoretical they should think like that, and there are no we should have this kind of redistribution or wealth inequality. It's very much uh, getting into their minds minds and hearts. What surprised you the most? Just how commonsensical people are when you really look at it. Like public attitudes were like just really mainstream a lot of mainstream public opinion is not particularly far out people are spot on well like when you ask them about questions um whether it's about the economy or redistribution or take something like the death penalty which was often used in this country as a reason of why you shouldn't give more people 
uh, a view because you know if you left it up to those masses you know those 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 non-elites they'll they'll bring back the death penalty and I thought well even even the death penalty doesn't have majority support anymore like over time people are quite accommodating I think broadly are progressive in the in that sense of the word we've always moved towards greater social equality so the greatest surprise to me was in almost all areas I didn't think that there was something innately difficult in dealing with public opinion I actually found that having to persuade elite policymakers that they should listen to that opinion is more of a challenge than actually conversing with your everyday people who don't hold extreme views most generally on most topics. I think it's a prejudice here here in Denmark about British politics that it has been that has evolved into some kind of designer politics over the years. And of course, because you had these very famous spin doctors and the, the Tony Blair regime and, and Peter Mandelson. And so, so we have this feeling that you've been listening a lot and surveying the voters a lot and known a lot about it, but it's kind of a premise for your book that people didn't, that, that the politicians didn't really understand or that the political elites or the political classes didn't really un- understand how people were thinking. Yeah, and if you look at working class voters, um, all the attention came on uh, working class voters much more acutely in the 2019 general election here in the December, because these historic places uh, that were traditionally held by Labour, um, it was called the Red Wall by the um, political uh, analyst James Canagasorian, but this red wall of places that were culturally thought of as Labour went and voted for Boris Johnson's Conservatives, it threw the spotlight onto working class voters. But working class voters have been pulling away from the British Labour Party since since uh, kind of the late uh, 1990s, really. Um, often they'd stayed at home, hadn't voted, um, did turn out uh, when the Brexit referendum happened. And it wasn't really till 2019 that that really converted into a, a big Conservative majority. So that was the kind of thought really about actually it wasn't intended as a criticism, particularly of how politics was done, apart from this fixation on the median, the swing voter and the swing places hmm. stops you really looking underneath about what are the trends that are changing those places over time and what do you need to do to really kind of tap into it. And in the end, no group, you can't overlook a group as big as the British working class in its current form because you can't win an election without them. And we have a clear picture in our minds when we say the word working class. For most of us, I think it's a picture that was established maybe 50, 60 or 70 years ago of male blue-collar workers in the factory and in 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 the coal mines. And I realized when I read your book that I actually still have that picture mm-hmm. in in in, in my head, what kind of picture would you like us to have in our head? And I know it's more atomized and it's not as homogenous when, when we speak of the new working class today. Yeah, and I think it's definitely important to recognize that it's a group, I group together different groups that make up what I describe as the new working class. So it includes those traditional working class uh, people, which is the sort of more, as you say, the sort of typical age of 66, male, ethnically white probably worked in, in, in a traditional industry, but it was also being joined by emerging service workers and more precarious workers. So it used the Great British Class Survey to kind of group a picture together. So if you did describe that person as being what you thought of as being working class, today think about it as the person who is probably female, 
might be running two jobs potentially um, because co living costs are ho so high. Might be the person that's cleaning the office at the end of the day. They might be the person that's on reception. They're not necessarily also people who just live geographically in these kind of so-called like left behind places. Part of the point I want to describe was working class people are living in every single town, village, city, high street, workplace, place of worship. The point is that uh, this isn't something that kind of elite policymakers can think is something they can focus group uh, and kind of visit hmm. periodically. It, you know, working class people are part of our lifeblood. We just need to update our definition of who we're talking about. And the question, of course, from a leftist position is that, is this a class not only on paper or in sociological, statistical terms, or is this also a class in itself? Is this is the is it for itself? Do they think of themselves as a class? Is it possible to make policies that will maybe not necessarily mobilize, but appeal to them as a class? So I don't think we're going to see a big return to class-based voting. So we've obviously got a two-party system that's been traditionally based around that kind of class interests of um Uh, the way the British economy has been run it's just that one part of that has become much more much more fragmented so I don't think you can have a kind of um definition or a class language that suddenly rallies the troops like people don't identify themselves in that in that way necessarily um and if we're thinking about that woman who is you know working in an office and and also really importantly maybe not ethnically white like the, the diversity of of the new british working class i think is is really really important people aren't necessarily going to rally to the cry of class or the language of class but people still vote on the basis of social grouping and they still vote on the basis of social grouping as in seeing themselves identified and identifiable within um british politics so therefore you can't just um you know poll people and just have uh, an issues based agenda you also have to capture that identity somehow it's just it's not as easy as uh, one homogenous group it's much more about really understanding what is the kind of social identity of those groups and what are the issues that are most important to them but also what are the values that are most important to them and how do you then almost renew a political party on the basis of we don't stand just for what was We stand for the new, we stand for the way that you live your lives now um, and doing that in a way which uh, I don't think has to foreground class, but has to be very aware of social identity. I was very surprised and that might be also a difference between British and Danish culture, that, that how important family was to people. And, you know, it wouldn't be a top 10 issue here, family. And maybe because we'd say daycare or retirement, or, you know, maybe because we'd use other words for it but family as it, it would never be the most important political value in Denmark I'm, I'm sure not in not in any class so that's really interesting because family came in the in this in the survey it wasn't my survey actually the survey that I quoted was um uh, by James Frain actually who uh came up with Theresa May's just about managing um prospectus which really started to reorientate the conservatives to try to appeal to these voters family came up in every across every uh, social grouping as being a value that they held importantly and and um uh, i think that's really uh, i found that really kind of encouraging actually because it wasn't necessarily saying 
I don't think that it was about traditional family structures or marriage, but it was much more about love and belonging and the people that are important to you and that those being your first line of defence. So I think politicians need to be really unafraid of talking about family, as long as they are inclusive in their definition of family. In Britain, for sure, protecting families and putting family stability at the centre of policy, I think, is um, incredibly important, not just for women, but for for, for men too. Yeah, I think here it would only be conservatives saying, well, we should scale back the welfare state a little. We shouldn't take all the functions out. That would be the the only point where you hear people talking about families here. And of course, Muslim, you know, against Muslim family, patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. But it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't be as prevalent here. Definitely, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really um, recognizing family as a sort of central organizing unit for society. And obviously we're going through our, which we may come to, um, what you might call our midlife crisis of Brexit and what we do about um, all of that. But it's kind of an identity crisis in a way. And I think understanding that, people's family and community without it's not a nostalgic view it's not about wanting to go back no, to no. time but that sense that what are we rooted to when our nation is is in a it, let's say it's in an evolving state um coming out of the european union perhaps we have a chance to reassert what what that means and i think understanding that family and community and your place are really a core part of that and it's part of it's part of why people voted to leave, I think, in the first place was they had seen some of the negative effects of this ever global weakening of national borders and had seen that that hadn't necessarily resulted in greater security or prosperity for them and got the chance to, to say something about that in that Brexit referendum. To, to address that, because that is a, a, a big issue, I think... Many here in Denmark, we have an emotional understanding of this take back control. And, and I think we share a, a parliamentary culture, political culture in the in the UK and Scandinavia that is a bit opposed to the more judiciary political cultures of the European Union. We don't want very strong courts. We don't want constitutional courts running our, our policies. Uh, so I think we share we, we share the political and also the sense that people should have control over their political control over them money, their, their borders and their, their taxes, that, that should be under democratic control. So we share, a lot of us share the instinct and the rallying cry of Brexit. Mm. But I think today many here would say, well, well, this was all a big lie. People were promised that they could get control back, that they could get new new deals, they could get new free, free trade agreements, and, and they got nothing. So, so I think here, sympathy for the... Um, for the for, for the rallying cry, a lot of skepticism, of course, about, of course, of course, about it. But but today, a feeling that 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 the Britain was deceived about Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, the campaign, the the Brexit campaign, the claims that were told during that campaign, you know, do not stand up to scrutiny, and there wasn't a clear proposition being put forward, so it wasn't as if the Brexit campaign were able to say, here is this chunky white paper of how Brexit will be done. And that was able to be poured over and scrutinised. So it really, it really was a gamble by the then Prime Minister David Cameron to try and pull his party into line. And it was a gamble that he did not think would go the way it went. And, you know, that is 
an act of negligence in in many people's views that said would people vote differently I mean I think lots of people would vote differently but there was something behind what they were trying to say which hasn't gone anywhere and it certainly hasn't been fixed by Brexit around the points you make around control being listened to and not being part of this economic settlement which you know I might say wasn't really about the European Union in the first place but being being not part of an economic settlement that didn't deliver rising prosperity living standards and opportunities for them and their kids um so so it's not as if everybody who voted leave is suddenly saying well gosh well we were lied to about that money for the nhs weren't we they are uh more skeptical about brexit because of how difficult it's been since 2016 to get to this point and we've only now i think seen um an, an agreement in northern ireland which is actually workable and we're this far on and, and and to the more general picture of, of the UK, I think we were a bit, we've been a bit surprised or maybe shocked over the last couple of months about the outlook for the for the British economy, the growth number, and certainly you start looking at the productivity growth over the last ten or or fifteen years, and you see this country, which on the one hand is a country that we admire. Your pop stars are our pop stars. They they watch the Premier League football, so you're a cultural superpower in our minds still. On the other hand, it's sort of like Poland is, is getting a stronger economy than the U than the UK. The UK is going to struggle more with the economy in 2023 than even Russia. So there's a kind of sudden realization here that there is a deep radical crisis in the UK. How do you, is it that deep? I think it is. I think it is, and I think it has some short run uh, problems and causes. And we have we have a. Uh, an enormous amount of industrial relations disputes at the moment so we have unprecedented in my adult lifetime that we have seemingly daily we have a new set of workers who are out on strike like that just hasn't happened and that that is preventable avoidable crises and then you have these longer run issues in terms of productivity low investment low wage economy wages not rising um costs obviously you know, really, I mean, really taking off, obviously, in terms of, of energy, but we haven't really cracked a lot of our long term cost problems like housing and so on and so forth. So I think there is a real um, there's a real, you know, the really deep, deep problems in, in Britain. And I'm an optimist um, completely. I mean, it's it's absolutely uh, we can, I hope, one day uh, talk and our pop stars and our footballers will be matched by. Denmark's admiration for our tech innovation and our exports and our, our booming economy once again and our brilliant public transport, but we are not there now. Uh, things are almost like they're falling apart. How important? Because you've been there's been a very strong financialization in the UK over the last thirty or forty years, and I I don't know if London is the finance capital of finance in the world, but it's one of the largest centers of finance, and it's been driving a lot of of the economy. How important is that? Is that a contributing factor to where you are now? That there's been so much of the economy that's been financialization and not gone into investment in industries and and public structures. Yeah, that's that's um that's entirely fair. And now what's happened is we almost seem to be having the worst of both worlds, which is because we're now gummed up in lots of other ways. The strength that we had in London and the southeast 
in terms of generating our prosperity, which was partly what caused this great regional inequality and this big backlash and the Conservatives owning levelling up as their big domestic policy. Part of that was a resentment towards London, the South East. But the answer to that is not to make London less competitive with its internet, with its global competitors, but was to have a long term plan about how we generated growth more fairly and more evenly. What we're seeing at the moment is we're not seeing that alternative investment plan go at the kind of rate it needs to. Um, I mean, I happen to live in the north of England, so it feels very literally close to home. Transport in the north of England is just dire and London just feels very different to the rest of the country. So you have all of the long-standing problems that predate Brexit. You have then layered onto that a London and South East, which, uh, you know, the whole economy is not thriving in the way it needs to. And we've spent so long trying to work out how on earth to leave the European Union and to get these agreements, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that, all of that bandwidth has been taken up rather than what I would like us to be have been doing, which is work out how we were going to have a longer term, fairer, more sustainable, greener plan for how we were going to create uh, opportunity that is much more spread through uh, our regions and our nations. So, um, yeah, you're not wrong uh, to say that we are in a difficult position, but we are also a very um, uh, we're looking for answers. We're a very um, uh, resilient country, obviously. We understand the position we're in uh, globally. Um, I think the geopolitics is making uh, there be a level of urgency around some of this. So I hope, obviously, I'm someone who has just come working from Keir Starmer. So I'm hoping that people translate their optimism, their hope into a vote for him. I think he will make an incredibly strong prime minister. But importantly, he's got a plan about what he wants to do with the future, um, which I think will be part of the answer to taking, uh, taking the country forward. One thing that really surprised me about about your your book, uh, which says more about me than about the UK, is, is that you said there was absolutely no appetite for class warfare in the in in the UK because when we speak about inequality and we speak about some are getting very very rich and they have an almost service class living under horrible condition, we often look at the UK. So so we would think, well, this is a place where you should be able to to have a kind of class mobilization, but 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 you you almost dismiss it in the book. Yeah, I mean it just doesn't um from from evidence, it's very clear like people don't want that kind of class warfare. Um uh it's it's very clear that there just isn't that kind of appetite. If you look at any elections that have tried to be run on that, it just is it it mobilizes and fires up a base of people who very feel very very strongly about inequality and it will it would fire up a left wing rally and that's fine as far as it goes but if you're interested in electoral politics and you actually want to get a mainstream of people behind you people don't don't respond positively to the language of class warfare and we have to be quite careful i think that you don't end up looking like you're kind of anti people achieving Brits don't like to be told in general that, you know, if you get on, we're going to tax you to high heaven at, at the other end. They want things to be fair. So I think I think getting the fairness message across, getting um, ensuring that our tax regime is fairer because it's not, you know, it's not obviously uh, optimised to be fair at the moment. People are supportive, as I said in the book, people are, are supportive of greater redistribution. 
but they don't want to be kind of lectured to and they don't want more divisive politics and that isn't really what I think the Labour Party should do uh, would do do well so it's not a rallying cry it's never worked in any election it's never worked in any by-election let alone a general election so I'm pretty dismissive of uh, class warfare um, but I think that's also because of the strength of our trade unions we've been able to negotiate our way through uh, a lot of the Labour politics that have resulted in have had different results in other advanced democracies. You know many here thought that Jeremy Corbyn was kind of at for a very short time people thought that he was the right person at the right time in a country where inequality had been growing you'd had the new Labour experiment and the third third way and then you have uh, Jeremy Corbyn and And people here even bought T-shirts with the, for the many, not, not not the few. Then, of course, quite soon, I think we realized that that he was actually not a very good leader. He was he had some of the worst tendencies of the left, being very stubborn about ideology, horrible foreign policies, and and not able to criticize his own. I think he does have a lot of bad sides sides to him. But I'm curious, what's the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn today? Because he also managed to mobilize a lot. And he did not, he wasn't far from winning the election in 2017. So I agree with those downsides of Jeremy Corbyn. And I was pretty, I was pretty dismayed as a Labour Party member when he was elected and just thought, I just, it, the, the, there are those downsides. The political legacy is the Labour Party became tainted with an anti-Semitism that, that came in in bigger um in bigger ways uh and that has been a big primary responsibility of Keir Starmer to make sure that the Labour Party is never a home for anti-Semites uh, and that has been a huge battle um, but I think Keir is well on the way way to doing that. In terms of his political legacy uh part of what he he also did was brought out policies in the end that that, that didn't feel credible to to the public on um the scale of kind of public expenditure. So I wasn't enthused by Jeremy Corbyn as a Labour Party supporter when he was um, elected, precisely because I didn't think he would speak for or ever speak for the British working class. And if you don't do that, then you can't win an election. Although uh, I think that he, under his leadership, and I think John McDonnell as his shadow chancellor, they were starting to be able to foster some of the successor ideas to what does the left stand for now they also had to fight a lot of political fires and didn't really have as much of a chance as they might have liked they also had to fight two elections bear in mind and a coup where he was tried to be uh, ousted from the party so they didn't really have a lot of space I don't think to let some of those policies breathe but I do think what they were able to do was start to bring on some of the thinking that um Uh, should have a place uh, in um, thinking about how you reform the economy, and lots of lots of that are not things that you know Keir Starmer is necessarily going to take on. But I do think that um, there were different ways that people were starting to think about economic um, contributions. So community wealth building and some of those sorts of ideas are not just owned by you know the left. They are ideas that I think should be brought into what a more sustainable economy looks like that gives people a real chance in their communities to contribute. So I think that there will be, I think when you look at the policy, there is, there'll be some interesting, it'll be interesting to see where we go. 
But I also think that McDonald just didn't, they didn't have a huge amount of time. They were having to firefight and election fight for an awful lot of the time when they were having to make policy. Um, and it'd be interesting to see uh, where he would take things now. Speaking about sustainability, I was quite surprised in the book that there's almost not a mention of, uh, I think you speak a little bit about environment in 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 the end, but we've been talking a lot about how to engage the working class with climate policies. And I think Joe Biden is onto something that is inspiring with his industrial policies and, and his Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, I think he he's onto something. Why was that climate and environment not, not a part of, of, of the survey at the time? I kind of make a confession at the end where I um, basically say that I've, 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 I struck the book and wrote the book around what people cared about deliberately yeah. to make a point to say these are things people care about. If you If you listen to what they wanted to do, what would you do? What I really tried not to do was impose what I wanted onto it, like in every way. And so therefore, basically ducked some quite big, important issues that any political leader is going to have to put at the centre. So climate is one. Social care was another. It, so what I wanted to do was say, these are the issues people really care about. What would you do about them? Would that be different now? I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I think climate probably falls in the top ten of issues for lots of working class people. But, and I definitely think there is a way of making environmental policies chime with people. But I think that's a different question to the one that I set myself for the book, and that is a good question to ask. And I've got an answer, you know, to it in the sense that it has to be about jobs, lowering costs, etc., not about trying to impose costs on people but yeah that's the reason why in that book it didn't feature as strongly that's not to say I don't think it would be in my top three of issues that I think need to be dealt with no and I wasn't criticizing you it's just yeah, yeah. but but then knowing what you what you know about the working class and on the one hand I think I I came out with the realization that they are more progressive on moral issues than I thought they would be. Yeah. And, and, and they're not conservative, bigoted. Uh, they, 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 and they are liberalizing for a decade, more, more and more. So, so there wouldn't be a principal argument against doing something for climate change. On the other hand, they're also quite conservative about how you run the country, the representative democracy. They, they don't want citizens' assemblies or, 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 or stuff like that. So this great transition that demands so much from us, how do you see that in tune with the new working class? So I think that's um, really important because I personally would advocate for more participatory democracy because I think it's part of how you work through quite complex challenges I personally do agree with Keir Starmer, who's put climate change at the centre of his missions for government that he released uh, last week. So I think they have their role. It's just if you ask people what they want, they want politicians to say what they'll do and do what they'll say. And that's basically it. They want the current system to work better. So that's not to say that you shouldn't then introduce different ways of doing government and I think particularly in times where there is less where public finances are really constrained I think having those kinds of participatory processes are really important um, so I definitely think particularly on um, things like the climate assembly and I, I'm a trustee of a public participation charity called Involve that ran the climate assemblies precisely because I think that's exactly how you can find your way through uh, quite complex issues, but I don't think that they are replacements for representative democracy and 
they are adjuncts to it i think um and uh, i think innovative government should be using that and could be using technology in much more interesting ways to be able to connect and engage with people uh, i have two more questions uh, uh one is if you look at i think there's a general realization that something is very critically wrong about democratic capitalism these years just within the last two or three years. Martin Wolf's new book is a good example of it. Someone who, who was working for this business newspaper for, for decades and now says, well, I agree with Bernie Sanders. I come from a different spot, but I, I agree with Bernie Sanders. And what I think is interesting about his point is that he says, this is not just renewal of capitalism, this is renewal of democracy as well. And there's a so so there's a kind of agreement among a lot of people that something radical should be done about redistribution, about democracy. When I look at, and I, I don't know a lot about Kirstama, I should say that I'm asking, I'm not criticizing. When I, when, when I look at what he's proposing, it does not seem to me to face how radical the challenges are and how structural the challenge, challenges are. How do you see this? Yeah, I mean, I think he is a reformer. Um, I think that he he aspires to quite fundamental reform. I think he's been consistent about that. What I think is different about him is he's actually run organisations and knows that you can't turn them upside down on day one. If you've got an advanced, deeply unequal capitalist economy that is class ridden and the trains are all going you know, up the creek as they are now and half your workers are out on dispute, the idea that you would present to the electorate, here is my uh, transformational radical plan. People are just like, just tell me what you're going to do to fix the things in my life that need to be fixed. So I just think he's got this kind of quiet reformist character, which is really wants to get to the root, root causes of problems. But I think he is just far too experienced to believe or get taken in that you can go out to voters and tell them that there's this big radical plan that's going to change their lives people are just too smart and too sensible to think that, that kind of radical overhaul on day one is actually going to fix problems they want they want very basic things at the moment they want to be able to get a doctor's appointment they want the ambulances to turn up when they need to turn up they want the trains to run on time and they want to start seeing increases in their wages those are things actually you do need fundamental reform. So I think he is a fundamentally reformist. He will be a great reforming prime minister in my view, but I don't think he should make any apology for the way that he would present that as being in tune and at the pace that people want to go at rather than presenting it as here's, an, here's the latest ideology that will impress parts of the sort of, you know, media but fall completely foul on the doorstep when we have to actually go and ask people whether they'll vote for that. And this moment that you're in now uh, in, in the UK, it seems, but it's very difficult to read polls from your country. Uh, it's very it's very difficult to understand where the momentum is. Is this a moment that that, that could be, I wouldn't say a new golden age for, for the left, but it seems like the Conservative Party is really, really really struggling and 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 that there's some potential for a center left renewal uh, in in the UK at the moment but there there really is and i mean we have to be honest the as you say the conservatives have made a bad situation worse and everybody thinks that they've made a bad situation worse and 
even if uh, the Prime Minister Sunak is able to meet these sort of very basic pledges that he set out, their sense that they've really just um, played a played a bad hand badly, I think is going to be difficult to overcome. That doesn't automatically mean that people come to Labour or that they feel infused by the centre-left. So part of what I'm doing now since I've um, uh, stopped working with Keir directly as part of the Leader's Office is a new project with the Progressive Policy Institute that's based in the US, which is um, generating ideas and uh, this sense of what that renewal on the centre-left might be like. So to your question about what are the what where's the point where you can kind of have green and red politics come together how can you have reformed modernized public services that meet uh, the needs of an aging population can we be a bit more open about where those ideas come from because whilst i think new labor achieved an awful lot it's very clear that the politics that were right then are not quite right for the politics of today um, but unless the centre-left really steps up to the plate and starts to um, advocate for a new consensus of what that looks like, you could see things uh, shift uh, and move away uh, quite quickly. So I think there definitely are causes of optimism in uh, the US, UK, Australia, in um, you know in Germany. But I, I think that there, it won't happen if we um, just chat about it. It will happen because people start to write, think, connect. And if we can bring working class voters together with the sort of progressives, the sort of liberals of, of, of the sort of middle class, then you can start. That's where you've always started to get big electoral politics done. So I feel quite optimistic and hopeful, but um, it won't it won't happen unless we make it happen. Well, I'm so glad to have talked to you. So it's good to get the sense of optimism and, and inspiration from the centre-left in, in the UK. Thank you for your book and thank you for your work. We will continue to follow it. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking your time. Not at all. It's been a um, real pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be uh, following your politics with interest too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Det var så min samtale med Claire Ainsley. Hun er i dag ansat ved noget, der hedder PPI, som er et center, som vil genopfinde politik for venstrefløjen i USA og Storbritannien. Det er derfra, hendes engagement og idéudvikling udgår i dag. Hvis man vil læse hendes bog, The New Working Class, How to Win Minds and Hearts and Votes, så er den udkommet på Bristol University Press. Man kan selvfølgelig bestille den over Amazon, men hvis man gerne vil støtte sin boghandler og den infrastruktur, der gør, at vi har en læsende og diskuterende offentlighed, så kan man også bare bestille den hjem i sin egen boghandel. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en, som vi har talt meget om og læst meget af på information i de sidste 30-40 år, nemlig den amerikanske kapitalismekritiker og feminist Nancy Fraser, som jeg selv interviewede for 14 år siden på RUC, hvor hun dengang forklarede mig, at alle de håb, vi havde til Obama, det kunne vi godt glemme igen. Han var og blev det, hun kaldte for en progressiv nyliberalist. Nu har vi så lidt vagere, men trods alt bedre funderede forhåbninger til, at Joe Biden kan bære en eller anden form for reform af hele den kapitalistiske økonomi igennem. Hvis man vil finde ud af, hvad Nancy Fraser siger til det, og hvor hun selv står i dag, og hvad der er pointerne i hendes seneste bog, Cannibal Capitalism, der udkom sidste år, jamen så kan jeg da kun anbefale, at man lytter med i næste uge. Den her udsendelse var klippet af vores gode ven, kammerat og kollega Mass Adam Vener. Tak til Mass, tak til jer for at I lyttede med. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber I vil være med til at mødes med Nancy Fraser i næste uge.